Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Consigli. Mark serves boards who are looking for in-house legal support, and they want it in plain English, and they want simple-to-live-with solutions that can sustain. I know that if in my dealings with the law, often I've been left befuddled. So what we're going to be looking at today are many of the ethical implications around AI. Um, where is AI pulling their data from? Um, how are people going to legislate in order to protect the intellectual property of individuals and organizations, whilst also creating access to this incredible technology? Many people are going to be asking how it will affect their job or their industry and them directly. If they're pulling all this information and creating are they really creating something new? Is it derivative? Is it synthetic? Does that really matter? You know, what's the definition of how we learn and how do humans learn and create? So we're going to be exploring all of these things. And then we're going to look at how do we partner with this AI in order to create something powerful and new? And we'll try and delve into the very thorny question of legislation as well. So it's going to be a fairly entertaining and uh, packed episode. Mark, Welcome, first of all, and uh, would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your history, please? Sure. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me on. Yes, I've uh, I've practiced law in the U.S., mostly out of New York for over 20 years. I partner with boards and executive teams in order to make sure they're compliant, dot the I's, cross the T's on compliance and regulations, but also in a way that helps them take a look at their revenue growth and to look at that more efficiently. I view legal departments as value add, uh, especially the in-house function. I've been a general counsel and a corporate secretary. And what I try to do is go in and show the value by connecting the revenue of the company, of the entity, including the legal department's goals and objectives to every aspect of what the legal department does, both from a current revenue support for current customers and also for obtaining new customers, whether that be through you know, RFPs, bids, partnerships, teaming agreements, every, every type of commercial agreement, reseller agreement, bar agreements that you can imagine. So, that, so that's really my function. Okay. So this opens up, explodes a whole load of questions in my head. So um, great stuff. First question then, because this has been bothering me for a very long time. How is it we can make things like compliance, legal, ESG, sustainability, all the, these uh, things that are currently considered to be cost centers, why are they not profit centers? Why are we not thinking differently about them and working out how we can work in tandem with sales, in tandem with marketing, in order to create product that customers will buy? To me, this um, smacks of the massive disconnect that exists in organizations because of the silos and the different systems that are yeah. set up and poor communication. Yeah. So I'd love your take on it because you worked with some pretty serious boards in your time. Why is it that they're so fractured and they, they seem to be working at odds with one another? I think you're right on that. Part of it is the siloed nature of some of these companies and, and, and they don't traditionally view the in-house legal department as a value add. The regulations and, and, and compliance issues aren't going to go away. We saw that with FTX. To me, that's not even a compliance issue. That's just a complete cool. ignorance of you know, knowing where the money is coming in and, and where it's going out. I'm not even sure they had basic accounting practices. I think that's changing a little bit. 
I think that in-house legal departments are taking on more work now and they're starting to get a little bit, or at least I'm trying to, to communicate that they're, 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 they're just another partner on the executive team. And there's a lot of insight. The legal department can also be creative in ways to not only save money, but also increase revenue through efficiencies and being compliant. If you're, the example is if you're, if you're not compliant in certain areas and then you get caught, it's going to be more expensive, say, uh, on a data breach, not even a data breach, but just not having adequate technology and security requirements, cybersecurity requirements in place to protect that. And that's really what the, the bar is for GDPR. It's adequate security measures. So that, that's the first thing. That's the low-hanging fruit that I think companies can can do, well, at least on that on that issue. So I, I think in, in a lot of cases, they have to embrace the compliance and, and, and not ignore it and really take a look at the, the technology that they have in place to, to make sure it's secure. Part of the challenge I think many businesses face is that technology is uh, advancing so fast um, mm-hmm. so often that keeping up is uh, not impossible. So maintaining their security is pretty much a full-time activity and now requires entire departments and uh, you know, larger mm-hmm. organizations. That's sucking up a lot of resource. Now you've got the advent of AI with all of the implications the, that it's bringing with it and the uncertainty about how it's going to affect jobs. It is going to affect jobs. The idea, if we think about the tractor, when the tractor came in, it meant that farm laborers could be much more productive. But we've now got 2% of the farmers that we used to have when before the tractor was introduced. Mm-hmm. And we now produce significantly more output. Technology inevitably means change. Mm-hmm. But we adapt as a species. And this is something that we have to adapt to. It's out of the bag unless they regulate it back into the box, which I think is going to be extremely difficult, then it's out. So it's something we have to accept. Now what we have to do is make the best of it. So tell me this, you're starting with a blank sheet of paper and you're advising a company on how to develop their policy around AI. What are the questions they need to be asking? Well, I think, yeah, right now there, um, a lot of companies are not allowing their employees to use AI, at least outside of the public domain. So in the old days, it was the intranet and then the internet. And just like um, they had blacklisted sites, which they still do, and whitelisted sites. So I think I think that's part of it. I think they if if you're you're a company and you're thinking about AI and those large language models such as OpenAI and ChatGPT, I think you need to be careful if you want your employees going out onto you know the internet and 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 using it you could be exposing your own proprietary and confidential information to such a a, a large language model such as ChatGPT i think that's that's a concern now um and i think also you have to develop a policy what what i've seen if you're if you're looking on a positive side what i've seen in the market is there are a lot of entities that are now I guess, pitching or, or proposing that the AI, the large language models be used internally within the company's intranet behind the firewall to connect previously siloed databases. 
you have a customer database, you have a financial database. What is the cost of onboarding a customer? What is the cost of losing a customer? I mean, these are basic questions about how you're going to conduct, you know, how it should affect your retention policy on customers. It should affect your prospecting policies. And in the past, you know, they've, as we've talked about, they've said, well, we're going to borrow so-and-so from the finance analytical group and they have a day job, but now they're going to, they're going to crunch numbers on, you know, this customer analysis. Well, I think if you set it up, I think AI can be used to set that up and to do that work in the background. And it's either a, it's either a prompt or maybe automatic when, uh, if you have it set up correctly, all your costs associated with your, you know, your sales prospecting, your business development, all those functions, customer retention, those can get itemized into a cost. And I'm getting very specific, even if you have a ballpark number, right? It's better than not having anything. And I think that can be that can be uh, churned out much more quickly now and take a lot less labor, time and labor. And then you'll start, and then over time, you know, you're going to, you're going to want to refine that and you'll you'll get a better number. But that that's how I see AI being used internally as a proprietary competitive advantage by companies. That's what I would advise on it right now. Keep it internal. The very idea that the sales and finance systems don't speak to one another and share information is just ludicrous. And when you consider the volume of information that companies are capturing, I was at a Forrester event a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, and and the head of um, their research team said that only 7% of companies use big data well. Now, that's not a lot of companies. (laughs) That's not. And they're sitting on piles of it, and I don't think they know what to do with it. I don't think they're using it to their advantage. Now, there, you know, there are some exceptions. Uh, I think some of the better ones that do it are, are Google. In fact, they anticipate what our purchases are going to be, right? Google and Amazon. I remember, you know, if you have the phone, they, they always say, you know, you shouldn't have your phone active. Well, we talk about a product or, or my wife and I talk about a trip or a product. All of a sudden, I go to do a Google search and the first thing on the top of there is the location that we were talking about or the product that we were talking about or a type of product. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, it's, so, it's so you know, then that's an, yeah, that gets into, yeah, it's, it's very convenient, but it also gets into an ethical issue. How much do you want them knowing about you? But I think, and that's B2C and consumers are a little more, well, they're definitely more finicky and they tend to be, the regulations tend to protect consumers over Businesses, and you'll appreciate that, at least in the U.S., a business is considered a sophisticated uh, entity, which may or may not be true. Again, the the legalities around this are very misunderstood. Uh, If we receive a letter and our name is in capital letters, it's a legal entity rather than you, Mark. It's Mark, the the corporate entity. And it has all sorts of ramifications if you uh, respond to one of those letters. And no one knows. No one's got a clue. Part of the problem that I think we've got is that the law is very opaque. And what I am very interested in is how AI will be used well or poorly by lay people in order to try and defend themselves or to work within the law. You know, it's 11% of the internet 
But which 11% depends on the quality of your, your prompt. Right. I, I posted about, and it's become a, a sort of a celebrity case, but not in, in, the, in, in a positive way. There was a lawyer a couple months back, a New York lawyer, who used AI to put together his um, case summary. It was an airline case. So he made, he made two mistakes. One is he used AI, uh, just pulling public domain information. Typically, the, that information on, on cases that are on point that have opinions, right, that can be used to leverage those cases are typically provided by like uh, LexisNexis or Westlaw. That's yeah. been the case for at least 50 years, maybe longer. So that's the first thing. The second thing, so he went out into the public domain, just pulled cases. The second thing is he didn't even read them or check them. Now, I remember when I was doing my case research, and I've used both LexisNexis and Westlaw, and I mean, it's not a plug for their services. There's others too, but th those are the big ones. I'm usually suspicious. I think we're all suspicious. I mean, this goes back to the days of reading newspapers. You read something in the newspaper, and either you think about it, you're like, is that, is that believable? Or should I be suspicious about that? Should I question that? The same way with uh, cases, and even cases that came out either for or against the opinion opinion that I was trying to prove or disprove, or the, the legal theory, I should say, I would still read it and, and at least read the summaries, right? The highlights. He didn't even do that. Well, he went in front of the judge and um, the judge says, these are not real cases. In fact, these cases don't even exist. Yep. They, were, they were completely made up cases. So how can a lawyer do that? And basically he turned around, I don't know what happened to his, his client, but now he's basically fighting for his law license because he's being subject to potentially, you know, some. That was gross incompetence, wasn't it? Or negligence. One or you other. know, it is. So, so you have to think that that person or someone who thinks like that, even if they had the correct databases, are, are they really evaluating it and, and thinking? So I think, I think when AI is used properly, and, and by the way, LexisNexis and Westlaw have been using it, again, in an in, as I described before, internally to crunch that data. That, that's been around for probably 30 years at least. We have these proprietary systems that are doing this now, but much more can be done with corporations that aren't in the business. Well, like you said, only 7% use it. And of those 7%, I would, I would guess that those are the ones that are selling those services to uh, the 93% that don't have it. <laughs> they're, they're the shovel sellers, not the prospectors. Right, right. They're, they're actually, the, the reason why they're 7% is, yeah, they're, that's their business, right? Where I think there's, there's a lot of potential for companies just to, they're sitting on so much data, they can make it more useful. Well, let's explore some of the ethical implications. You, you've mentioned it already that uh, people are using these public domain content in order mm -hmm. to create their large language models and to pull the data in order to respond to our prompts. And many of those works will be protected by copyright. Copyright, so, pat, you know, potentially patentable systems and materials. Um, yeah, published works. Yeah, absolutely. Trademark stuff that's being pulled, right? The other side of it is the darker side, which is I saw a documentary where a bunch of medical researchers had decided to run a test to see what it would come up with for creating toxins. 
and oh, overnight it had created yeah. 60,000, wow. most of which had never been created or heard of before, mm-hmm. and they switched it off. But there are all these implications of this incredibly powerful resource, and how do we use it well and ensure that bad actors find it impossible to use it for malice? These are big questions, so I don't expect a complete answer, but I'd, I'd love your take. <laughs> no, and yeah, it's difficult. So if we're going to parse it a little bit, I like to focus on the intellectual property, especially with artists that have work out there already. Almost every artist, at least the big ones, have videos or music on uh, YouTube, right, which is owned by Google, and it's publicly available. You know, Spotify and, and Apple Music are more proprietary. But so when, when, let's say on YouTube, you're pulling some music from an artist and then you're, you're, or the LLM is the AI LLM you're searching and then you're technically creating a new, a new song, but it's derivative. It kind of goes back in the days. And I'm going to date myself here of, you know, sampling, like to use the, uh, the beats or the regular rhythm beats from certain artists and they would create a new artist. You know, the question was, is that previous artist entitled to, um, um, you know, some some royalties based on the use of their works? And there have been some high profile cases too. George Harrison was one, and then recently the Verve uh, with uh, the Rolling Stones. So I think that's part of it because in the past it was harder to do. Now it's almost automatic. You can do it within a matter of seconds. Actually, just go out and pull that. So. I think regulations there will help existing artists. But the question is, what is actually, what is newly created? And it, it raises the question of not only how does these large language models learn or create, but how do humans actually create and learn? I want to come on to that in just a second. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit in that pretty much everything that we know is derivative. And we're always yeah. learning from one another. You know, I've been teaching stuff which I've learned from other people. I've then synthesized because I've had hundreds of conversations with people. And what I do is not original, but it. I hope at least it's uh, somewhat different. And a lot of what I do actually is almost nostalgic because it harks back to some fundamentals. Don't be a horrible human being. Uh, turn up to serve don't represent any uh, reason for their uh, brain to see you as a threat. Spend time with people and try to understand what they're trying to accomplish and help them accomplish it. It's not really groundbreaking, but in this environment, it's rare, depressingly. And you know, I wrote a couple of posts on sales ethics. And if you type in hashtag sales ethics on LinkedIn, I think they're still the only two or three posts, which breaks my heart. You know, it, it tells me that we've, we seem to have lost our way. So how do we get back to an environment where people actually care, where there is a moral compass? Because that seems to have gone out the window. Yeah, I think to some extent. I'm just thinking about music, digital music, and some of the history. You know, there was Napster yeah. a number of years ago yeah. that was just taking artists' work and putting it out there for free. It's on the internet. It's free. That got shut down, thankfully. It's a double-edged sword, too, because a lot of the artists and a lot of the commercial models are 
the smaller artists, the struggling artists, wants more views and 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 wants to expand their base. So they're willing to give up the royalties for that. But the established artists, that's their life's work. And you know, I'm sure, actually, I'm not sure who owns it now, but if the Beatle collection were put out there for free, I'm 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 not sure that Paul McCartney, well, maybe he doesn't care at this point. Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr might be upset about that. But I think part of it is there hasn't, you know, there seems to be a loss of accountability and maybe it's just the sheer magnitude of the data that's out there, that's available globally, that it's hard to, you know, it's hard to police unless, you know, companies or someone brings a lawsuit and actually enforces it and forces them to do that. And we've seen, you know, just with the cases that I mentioned, we've seen that here and there, but you're right. There isn't a lot now. And, you know, right now it's, it's happening with, uh, with uh, artistry as well as music. You mentioned the, the, the creation of the toxins. So I think that's an issue that probably needs to be tackled. I, the governments, and let's say that they're probably, well, the representatives probably understand the technology the least. We give them the um, the power to regulate it in some way. So that's a bit of a problem. And then you have your, your lobbying groups that may push it one way or the other. So that's going to be hard. And we've seen that in, not only in AI, where they're struggling of what to do about it, but also with, uh, with cryptocurrencies as well. So I, I, I don't know that there's an answer right now. Let's park that for the moment and ca- carry on with your other very interesting question, which is what is learning? Let's try and define learning from a human perspective. How would you define it? Well, in the IP sense, learning and, and new create, let's say it's a new creation of a new work. For copyrights, it's, it's technically first published. So if you put it out on the internet, you, you know, you have a chance, you have first published, you don't have to race to the, the copyright office. For patents, it is a race to the, to the copyright office, uh, to, to the patent and trademark office, sorry. And same with trademarks too. You have to put everyone on notice of your, of your new invention. And, you know, like with, uh, I think Cold Fusion came up, right, recently, that that's come up again. Is that a new, you know, is that a new creation? Is that going to work? Well, that might be a patentable process or a patentable idea. Human learning is is very complex. It, it's based on everything that we've, you know, accumulated over time to the extent that we can recall it. There's what is it they say? How much? What's? It's a very low percentage of what we use of our brains. That's a very questionable uh, research. We <laughs> use all of our brain. Yeah. <laughs> we use all of it all the time. Uh, right. It may be what, 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 what percentage we're conscious of that we really, because there's other things going on in the background, right? Some good, some bad. I think that questions it. We have to define what is, what is true human learning and human creation before you can define what is this AI large language model creation and learning, you know, what I would advise, again, companies that are, are, are trying to protect your, your, your intellectual property in the same way you have in the past, be careful of what you put out onto web. And you, you're going to have to be diligent about that if other, I mean, it really hasn't changed from, from that perspective. Um, and then also, 
you're going to have to define a policy on whether or not to let your employees use AI. Would you rather them use the tools that you create or do you want them to go outside and, and do it on their own? It's kind of like that. And, and we, I mentioned that before about the blacklisted and the, and the whitelisted websites. I think companies have to have a clear policy on how they're going to do that, not only on their employee use and how it you know, could benefit internally as well. They, they have to have, they have to develop a policy. Interesting. Okay. So if we think about how you foresee AI changing the way the world of work operates, what, what are your thoughts in terms of the, the likely changes and what people need to prepare for, plan for, and protect themselves from? Like any new technology, I view it as a potential for great efficiencies, connecting those siloed databases within a company that for years, you know, you've had to, you've had to take either bring in an outside consultant to give you a plan, and then they may or may not execute on that, and then borrow resources to pull all these disparate, you know, proprietary siloed systems together. I think AI can do that and answer the questions in sales specifically. How much does it cost to acquire a new customer? How much does it cost to lose a customer or retain a customer? And also, I think it's going to help with narrowing down the prospects, the spray and pray going after all the customers that either view your website or whatever. I mean, I, I've listened to a lot of your other shows, your podcast. Companies should be going after the right customer, not necessarily all customers. There are some wrong customers. Well, I'm putting and together. They, uh, uh, sorry, uh, I'm putting together a framework so that you can calculate what these costs are in your business now. And I've been That's embedded that. with sales, negotiating those commercial agreements forever. And there are definitely customers that want to partner with you that don't just see that they see that agreement as the beginning and it's a relationship relationship agreement right versus the transactional one where that customer sure they signed up for three years and they're going to terminate after a year was it worth it to even bring them on board for that one year and then also your existing customers are you looking at them are you as they grow and expand are you helping them to do that with your products and services as well. You've well, taken all that time to bring them on board. Are you able to increase your sales with existing customers? Because that's going to be easier than going out and spending all that time to bring another one on board. If we look at the metrics through a different set of eyes, then we might start thinking about, well, how do we uh, increase speed to profitability? If we can get them profitable in three months instead of nine, then I've got six months of additional profit, a profit I can spend. I can't spend revenue. What do I have to do to shorten my sales cycle? Why is there fat in the system that is causing drop-off? What are the triggers that create additional downstream work that only generates cost and opportunity cost? And it's just paying for pointless admin. If we can see all of this stuff now, and If you're willing to take the time to actually get the AI to connect your systems and get them to talk, the potential for being able to identify what 
a great prospect looks like and only attract them. One of the ways that I've been teaching my clients to use it is to develop their anti-ICP so that they stop attracting any mm, of the right. wrong type of customer. Wrong customer. Yeah. Yeah. When they do that, they free up 97% of their time. 97! Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. That's exactly true. And then, you know, with your existing customers, your ICPs, there is so much comment in the customer service. You know, we like this, but we don't like that. And I saw that. I saw that specifically in my work because not only was I involved in the beginning of the customer onboarding, vetting them through the the finance, you know, the financial uh, background, running a credit check, also making sure that they uh, weren't on the denied parties list or doing business with certain denied parties, certain countries, certain companies, right? But on the back end, working with uh, claims and disputes, I knew all the, I heard all the complaints at the back end. And, well, you know, you look at this and you're like, why isn't this part of the checklist for the onboarding? We could have never delivered these services because product development told me not only do we not have that product, it's not in the pipeline and it won't be in the future. <laughs> but yet we onboarded a customer. Mark, this is what flabbergasts me, that the short-term thinking with this technology and the right kind of leadership we can create incredibly efficient businesses that have headcounts that are one-tenth of the size that they need to be. I mean, what, one of the things that always baffles me, for example, and you touched on it just now, is the amount of quality insight that is available from the customer service and the dispute set, mm-hmm. uh, the, the customer complaint set. They speak to customers six to eight hours a day. The average salesperson speaks to a customer for three minutes a day. Why are we listening to people saying, call me back in six months, instead of that rich vein of uh, information. In fact, Amy Brown runs a company called Authentics, and they use AI to analyze 10 billion calls to the uh, US medical insurance market every year. Mm. And the insights that they're getting off the back of that information from the customer uh, success and um, from the uh, support and they've managed to save 40% of salespeople's time just simply by, because yeah. the website was unnavigable. So sales ended up having to do all of that. Well, but by hearing that from customer success, they were able to fix that problem and give them 40% additional selling capacity for free. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Medical, boy, and it's different in the US and the UK, I know, but medical billing in the US, just from a I've experienced some of that business with businesses, but also personal experience is extremely inefficient. They're always misbilling to the wrong coverage and the wrong amounts. I just had that. I got just the other day, I got a magic code that if I get any more invoices, I can apply to that and they'll bill it to the right coverage that I had. But there's incredible amount of inefficiencies with sales, customer service, customer retention and identifying the right or wrong customer. I think that all starts at the top though with with strategy. There has to be a clear strategy. Are you just trying to expand revenue? In which case profit probably gonna suffer because you're gonna have to, you might be more competitive on on either, you know, including more services or at less pricing or pricing is gonna be discounted a bit or is it for profit? And, you know, those are again, basic questions of the business. But once you have a strategy from the top, now I think 
AI will provide a way to actually execute on that in a realistic manner and more efficiently than in the past by just throwing more resources at it. I think that's going to be the big breakthrough and the better companies are going to be the ones that are doing it. And, and we should see that in, in the next in, in the coming years. What, what I am seeing is an amplification of people using their old thinking on this new technology. And the net result is they're just creating a deafening wall of noise, certainly mm. in their marketing. And people are producing content that's clearly not authentic. It's not well thought through. And it's playing to the algorithms. What do you think should uh, the platforms should be doing in order to ensure that the quality of the content and the experience doesn't diminish? Is there anything they can do? Well, I heard, and, and again, I'd, I'd have to confirm, um, you know, I heard OpenAI, the company itself, was considering bankruptcy because they're like 500 million in the hole already. So <laughs> maybe the business model doesn't work. It's interesting because it took so many resources to put it together. And maybe they didn't figure out, this is such a great idea, they didn't figure out the revenue stream behind it. Before Google, Yahoo, which I think is still a search engine, but they've branched off. And before that, there was Netscape. So a lot of times, many of these companies that are out there, I know I'm not necessarily answering your question head on, but a lot of these companies that are, are producing these algorithms of these search engines, these large language models, may not have even thought about their their own revenue model and may not exist going forward. But I think that's a good question. It goes back to what is a newly created work? There are existing definitions under the law, you know, in the US and elsewhere. But I think that that's one of the, the issues that has to be determined. And what do we what do we do about it? They talk about like deep fakes of using celebrities. And there's in fact, they did that with the Pope, right? I think. They used his image or something, and 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 I don't know what the the content the the issue specifically was, but I mean I think we have to when we see something that doesn't feel right, we have to approach it with the same level of suspicion and criticism as we have in the past with other mediums of technology. I think that's right now. Uh, you know, for a company trying to protect its IP, be careful. Be careful how your employees have a have a policy in place of how your employees are going to use it, whether that stays internal to your company or if you want to allow them to go externally. It's the same thing. Do you want you know certain sites? Do you want employees going to certain sites that are known for you know malware and and hacks and 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 you know that, that subject you to that avail you to those types of threats? I think you have to view the use of AI in the same way. Okay, so you've got your time all over and uh, you've got a golden ticket. And you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Mark, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you have given him that you know he'd have ignored but would have been useful? That's a good question. Just going back, not that far, but in the mid-90s, when you know the internet was in its infancy and the various search engines were being built in fact there were some such as mosaic you could build yourself and then and then it went to netscape was a big one and then microsoft got into the game i think you know there 
it's it's the same pattern of new technology. I think the technology was there and it had unbounded possibilities. I think, and then, you know, and, and then the dot-com era followed shortly after that, where companies just with a dot-com or, or name were setting up shop, many of them failed. Uh, some of them survived. Amazon was one that, that survived and thrived, and now they're dominant. I, I think the, what we're seeing now is the beginning, but like in a lot of cases of new technology, the ending, a lot of companies aren't seeing the use for it. It's kind of a novel and fun idea right now to play around with, just like searching the internet. <clears throat> I remember when Google first came out, they had this one box. It's like, whoa, you know, it's the same thing now with ChatGPT. If your prompts aren't specific or well-crafted, you're going to get the universe of information. How does that help you? That's what ChatGPT or the other models are doing. They're just taking that Google box and they're summarizing it for you into a narrative or in some cases, with some of the um, the artist ones, illustrations, and in some cases with music, you're getting the same, the similar uh, returns, and it recognizes certain patterns. So it's applying that as well. I think that's what it is. There's so much. There's so many potentials for it to be used for good. Maybe this time not not so good. But that was the same thing with the internet explosion of of the '90s as well. I think thinking about your point, it's very valid. However, AI often comes back with completely unexpected results. And because the, it's been mixing and matching, if you like, that stuff will be original. But again, how does one track it? How does one measure it? Uh, um, how, how, do you, how do you ensure uh, or how, how much of it is derivative? And I've seen you've had comments on this. <clears throat> That's one we would describe. If, it, if it's coming back with inconsistent, well, again, if, if the person using it is approaching it with some level of suspicion and critical analysis, that's going to be uncovered. If the person is, you know, we, we call that user error, right? If they're not using it correctly, is it really the tool or yeah. is it the person that's <laughs> using it? That's normally um, the last ethic. That's always going to be the case. That's always going to be the case with any technology. I think that's, again, that example of the lawyer that was pulling all his cases off the internet using uh, chat GPT. He didn't even bother to read them, whether they were real cases or not. Didn't bother. Humans that's still... laziness. That's negligence. It's just, it's, completely, it's, completely. Malpractice. Malpractice. Yeah. Even when I was pulling them off of paid for sites, reputable sites that have been around for years, I still was always concerned and nervous that one, I wasn't interpreting them correctly, or two, is it really going to help my client? That should never go away. That should never go away. You know, when we did those initial Google searches, did we believe everything we got back? Oh, we found out later that the algorithm. Google put its highest paying advertisers at the top, right? So, so was it really was it really this great search engine, or was there uh, was there you know some sort of uh, commercialization behind it? And I think we know what the answer to that is over the well, years. It, this then raises a whole slew of questions, which we don't have time for now. 
but just because we can, should we? So let's just finish on that thought. As you look at the technology and the landscape ahead, where do you see the big opportunities, both to turn this into a force for good and to make things go horribly wrong? Right. So Start with horribly wrong so we can finish on a high note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, so we'll go with that negative first. Well, the negative is that, uh, I don't want to use the term, but then there's a lot of misinformation. There's, there's a, we'll talk about from commercialization, right? In the old days, there were cigarette advertisements sponsored by doctors saying it was yeah. healthy for you, right? We, we, we can't even imagine that. Um, um, and also OxyContin, uh, Purdue Pharma the opioid-based drug, they marketed that as saying, oh, we finally had a breakthrough. It's this amazing drug and you can't get addicted to it. It was completely the opposite. It's one of the most addictive things ever ever created, right? So so I think that's how um, we need to be careful, especially in the marketing of to consumers specifically, also the businesses, but mostly the consumers. What we're looking at, is that real? And I think it's just, you have to approach it with suspicion and critical analysis. And there's ways of, you know, triangulating that. Um, I, as a lawyer, if I, and I've used ChatGPT to put together some summaries, not of confidential information, just, you know, when I have writer's block and I have these concepts, like an outline, and then I'll prompt it to put together a summary. You know what I find myself doing when I get the feedback? It generalizes it so much, it loses its impact. I go by, I go back and I say, okay, this is good. And I start organizing and I'm basically the editor right now. And I use the uh, chat GPT 4.0. So, so for there, you know, uh, if I'm developing maybe an internal response or an analysis, it'll help sometimes put my thoughts together on a particular issue. It's kind of like a sounding board where another person would have, I would have bounced that off of, but now I can bounce off the ideas and it just helps me to click into gear but I'm still editing it. I'm in, I'm enhancing it even more. So that's, how, found, that's a good way, I think, of using it. And also tying together these siloed databases that have a tremendous amount of customer data or other corporate data that in the they've always talked about connecting. I think it, it's going to be easier to do that now. So that that's the good, making companies more efficient. Whether that affects you know employment or not, I mean, that remains to be seen. But I think if you're an employee, you should probably embrace it to the extent that your company has a policy on it and is behind it. And if you're in sales and you're not experimenting with it, and for goodness sake, don't just use it to pump out more dreadful spam emails to my inbox, but use it as an intellectual sparring partner. Have it act as your customer so you can brief it and give it really good detail about the personality, the um, the context, the um, state of the business, where they are in their life cycle, how long they've been trading, their current trading figures. You can feed it all of that stuff, and then you yep. can put your hypothesis to it. But one of the things that I really have found very useful is starting with the, uh, the outcome and build the prompt yeah. backwards from there. So yeah. my intention is to create this win-win outcome and these are the obstacles, these are the concerns, help me navigate that. And it'll then help me create a framework so I can create a true win-win. Because right. as far as I'm concerned, a win-win 
means that both sides get their needs met eventually without compromise. That's hard. And this is where I think the AI can come into its own. Yeah. Because yeah. it can help us do a lot of that thinking beforehand so that we can mitigate some of those risks. Yeah. I, I think an inefficient way of using it is would it be automate processes that aren't helping. Yeah. You know, there's no value add to them. It's it's garbage in, garbage out. That's another thing, you know, companies need to look at um, if they're going to implement it. Don't implement a automate a system that is not providing you value to begin with. Yeah, no, that's absolutely that that corporations are sitting on so much data. It's probably not the right data and and in the way of sales again, sometimes if if you have prospects and you need to prioritize them, wouldn't it be great to know which matches the ideal customer profile and which doesn't? And I think this this type of system can do that much quicker objectively assuming the again garbage in garbage out assuming it's built in the proper way for it to analyze that i think i think that can be tremendously helpful save time not only for new customers but also uh you know help to retain existing customers because at the end of the day our people and i'm sure you've experienced this and i have too and especially with businesses People aren't going to buy off of, uh, shouldn't be buying off of an email or a direct message. The trust needs to be built there for but, that. Or something that uh, doesn't have repercussions, but anything significant. Yeah. You might open the door with a cold email, but by and large, you're going right. to have a 0.0045% success rate in converting right. those emails. That's into right. Revenue. That's right. That's, that's, that's incredibly inefficient. But um, what, what really interests me here is that this is a great opportunity for organizations that choose to embrace it and to think differently. This is an opportunity to redesign the things that aren't working from the blank sheet of paper and to capitalize on the fact that you now have access to basically a very willing eight-year-old that will go anywhere you point it and, and bring you back the information that you asked for. And if you're intelligent about it and you take your time, you know, you could take two or three weeks to do this and you can do a 12 month yeah. work in that time. But it needs to be iterative and don't take the first answer. That's right. Begin with the end in mind, start with mm -hmm. the job to be done, mm -hmm. work backwards from there and then iterate, iterate, iterate and keep nuancing it to the point where you spit out your ICP that is bang on the money and then have it generate your anti-ICP. So this is my ICP. Tell me what my anti-ICP would look like and what language and what content would repel those people without right. setting my audience. Now, That's I right. can't do that without having an army of people beforehand. Yeah. Now I can. I can do a competitor analysis. I can look at my competition and I can analyze what their strengths are, their weaknesses are, the weakness in their strength, the strength in their weakness. I can identify what their competitive set is. I can identify the gaps that I can fill so they're no longer competitors, but I'm a natural addition to any one of their clients. Now, I couldn't do that before. This is available to us today, and it's only going to get more sophisticated but you've got to think differently. That's my admonition on this one. You've got to think differently and you've got to stop thinking in the old way, 
which is short-term transactional and greedy. Mm, yeah. And now start thinking, how do we get everyone to win? What's the outcome that will result in sustainable, profitable, long-term lifetime customers that come back and bring their wealthy friends and expand? I agree. Yeah. Because you're going to pick up on behaviors and preferences for your customers that your customers may not even be aware of. Sell them something that they haven't even thought of that can can improve their their business and their lives. I mean, I think that's that's the potential for the breakthrough here, pulling together all that data. So I need to do an episode on how you can use it to create your proposition. Yeah. Uh, that must be an interesting episode. Mm. Just like with any new technology, there's going to be experimentation and trial and error. But I think that's the thing. Don't take it at just like with any other technology or uh, or news or information, don't take it at face value. Definitely pick it apart, pick at it. And um, you're right, keep refining. Excellent. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to? Are there any channels that you favor, podcasts, anything? Oh, I mean, right now there's, on this subject, it's available. I don't recommend that employees should try it at work because you don't want to expose your, just like with you know going to certain websites, but if you have your, you know, your own your own devices, go on to a chat GPT or open AI or, or one of these and, and try working with it just in you know organizing your own life and you'll get better at it. That's my recommendation. Is that's the other thing, is right? Jump in and try and again experiment, fail with it. It's not scary. It really isn't scary. No, it's not. And that's the thing. The scariness is the thought of being too afraid to even try it. Usually after you try it, you're like, and then <laughs> some of the initial results will be less than overwhelming. And you'd be like, seriously, this isn't an eight year old. This is more like my dog. And I have to train the dog. <laughs> you know, it, it's great that the dog is bringing me the newspaper, but it would be even better if the dog, you know, went into the refrigerator and brought me a nice beverage. Yeah, fair days. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate it. How can people get hold of you? Uh, right now, they can go to my uh, LinkedIn profile, uh, Mark and Sigley. And then also, I have an entity created the business for my consulting businesses and it's called global mark legal that can also be found on linkedin wonderful mark consigli thank you thank you marcus so this is marcus kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you found this useful and insightful then please do like comment share and subscribe and if you want to get hold of mark or you want to ask him or me a question then please do my email is marcus at last-last.com if you want to get in touch with me I'm now taking on a handful of new coaching clients and um, you're going to be somebody who's probably found that you've lost your way a little bit. Um, you've been successful in the past. You've been trained in all the great systems like Sandler, Richardson, Medic, Challenger, Spin, Pathway, and all that. And it's not working anymore. And you're finding that you're going to have to compromise your values in order to succeed or you're going to have to find a better way. I have a better way. If you want to get in touch, then drop me a line either through LinkedIn or email. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.